All right, head coverings. How many came here just to hear head coverings today? <laughs> All right. Uh, some of you are waiting for this passage ever since we started 1 Corinthians. Uh, what is Pastor Jason going to do with this passage? Is he going to skip over it? What's he going to do? Ironically, I don't see any ladies wearing hats today. <laughs> anyway, um, I think this is an awesome passage. Unfortunately, the, my Bible has it labeled as head coverings, which is okay. It is about head coverings, but then again, it isn't. Uh, there, this is a notoriously controversial passage. Some churches have built whole dress codes uh, and permissible hairstyles off of this one passage, which kind of makes me chuckle. I grew up hearing this passage, especially verses 14 and 15, used as the basis for long hair on women and short hair on men. I heard it preached that nature itself teaches that a man is disgraced if he has long hair. So if you cut your hair, you had to cut your hair above your ears and collar and eyebrows, otherwise your hair was too long and it was a disgrace to you. And conversely, for women to have short hair, it was a disgrace for them. As a child, I kind of wondered why all the pictures of Jesus portrayed him with long hair. So why was it okay for him to have long hair? <laughs> Wasn't it a disgrace for him, right? What about the Nazarites in the Old Testament, like Samson, right? Strongest man that ever lived, and he had long hair, and God told him not to cut it, all right? So something didn't seem to add up in my young little brain. And then I wondered about all those older ladies whom I knew, like my grandmother, who was a wonderful, faithful follower of Jesus, but she cut her hair short in old age, and when I saw them in church, I wondered, wasn't it a disgrace for them to have short hair? Like, what is going on here, right? Is this what Paul is getting at in today's passage, that God is concerned with the length of our hair? To me, if God really was concerned about hair length, then don't you think he would have given specific instructions as to what that means, right? And why not then give us guidance on beard length and length of fingernails and toenails and whether or not we should pluck our eyebrows? Like, why not get that specific, right? Is God really concerned that men keep their heads covered or uncovered and that women keep their heads covered when they are at church? Is this what this passage is about? Yes and no. The covering or uncovering of one's head carried cultural significance for the Corinthians. And so for the Corinthians in Corinth, yes, this is what Paul is talking about. But the deeper issues that Paul is getting at play themselves out in our society a little bit differently Today. So, to be clear, there are a number of difficulties with this passage. I read no less than six commentaries, and they all have different takes on the interpretation of this passage because there are just some cultural uh, assumptions that both Paul and his original audience instinctively understood. Uh, but these assumptions and these understandings are lost to us because we're thousands of years later, right? So, let me list a few places that these 16 verses, uh, in these 16 verses, that cause some interpretive difficulties. So, what kind of head covering is Paul actually talking about, right? Uh, the term for wife can also just mean woman. Uh, the term for husband can just mean man. And so, is Paul talking about husbands and wives or talking about men and women in general in this passage? It's not exactly clear. What does Paul mean by woman is the glory of man in verse 7? What does Paul mean by a symbol of authority in verse 10? What do angels have to do with anything in this passage, verse 10, right? How are head coverings related to hair? And those are just a couple of the difficult questions I wrestled with as I was preparing for this message. And I'm going to do my best to interpret this for you and then apply it to today. Uh, just know that there are various views about how this is to be applied out there. And 
Um, but as always, we're going to lean heavily upon context because context determines meaning, right? Context determines meaning. This is why I always bring us back to the theme of this entire letter, the main melody or symphony line for you musicians, right, that binds it all together. The theme is of ultimate importance for how we interpret this because everything that God instructed Paul to write in his first letter to the Corinthian church is pointing to that central theme. And the theme is this, living as a gospel-centered community. Every topic that Paul addresses in this letter was in some way working against the church's unity. And each topic, instead of being a unifying thing in that Corinthian church, was a source of division in the congregation. It's the same with this head covering topic. You see, Paul's explanation regarding head coverings doesn't stand alone. It's not just there by itself. This paragraph ties in with giving up our rights, which we've been talking about the past few weeks, being motivated by love, doing all for the glory of God, running from idolatry, being loyal to Jesus, abstaining from sexual immorality, understanding that we are all living stones being built together into the temple of God, and that the gospel of the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and return of Jesus is what unifies us all together as a body. All of this is foundational to this passage. In fact, for the past three chapters, the big idea that Paul has been defending is that if we operate on the premise of our individual freedom in Christ or our personal rights, division is the outcome. The premise upon which we operate as children of God is love, right? Without love as the boundary for our freedom, saying all things are lawful for me and exercising our personal rights just brings shame and pain and disunity and sin into the body of Christ. And as a result, God will not be glorified and his people will not be built up. And that's what Paul's been talking about. And so we must keep those principles and those theological moorings and all that we've learned thus far in this letter in mind as we go into this passage. Now, like we did a few weeks ago, I'm going to begin with the million-dollar question, what does this why does this passage matter to us? Why does it matter to us as independent, non-denominational church in the middle of a cornfield in rural Wisconsin in the year 2023? How does this deal with us, right? Because it does matter. It does matter to us. It was written for our instruction. So here we go. First point, God's created order. Verse 2 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the tradition even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So Paul commends them because they remembered the things that he taught them and the traditions that he delivered to them. And one of the things which Paul most definitely taught everywhere that he planted a church was recorded in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. I'm going to read it for you. Galatians 3, 27 and 28 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And it seems from this portion of the letter in Corinthian, to the Corinthians that the Corinthian church may have misunderstood Paul's teaching on equality and had a difficult time applying it to their everyday life situations. Kind of like they were misapplying their freedom in Christ to eat meat offered to idols, now they were misapplying their equality in Christ. Okay? 
And so, like he did before, Paul takes them back to theological truth so he can shed light on their Christian doctrine and thus create their misapplication. Okay? This is what he's been doing all through the book. He, he, he gives them a theological truth so he can shed light on their doctrine and then correct their misapplication of that doctrine. Now, verse 3 is a very important beginning statement which sets the tone for the rest of this discussion. Paul says that the head or authority of every man is Christ. And he says the head or authority of a wife is her husband, and the head or authority of Christ is God. I want to let that verse simmer for a second, and I'm going to give some cultural uh, background. In, in, Corinthian, in Corinthian culture, uh, for a woman to walk around uh, with loose flowing hair on a woman, um, it was worn without a head covering. It was considered immodest. Okay? It was a sexually provocative thing for a woman to walk around without a head covering or with loose flowing hair. It was typically a thing only that prostitutes did, and it was shameful to them. Married woman would most definitely wear a head covering because it was a symbol of being married. It signified that they were unavailable. Okay? If a married woman were to take off her head covering in public, it was a sign that she was stepping out from underneath the authority of her husband. And I'll explain what I mean by authority in a minute. In our modern-day culture, it would be like a woman going into a supermarket in a bikini or going into the church potluck in a miniskirt and halter top. I'll give you, give you other examples, but you get the picture. These are the immodest ways of dressing, and dressing like this brings attention to the woman wearing those clothes. In church setting, which is what Paul is addressing here, the attention should be on glorifying the Lord and building up one another. So if a woman dresses like that and comes to worship, is the attention of others going to be on her or on the Lord? Is it building up others in the room or distracting them from the purpose of the gathering? Additionally, just like in the Corinthian culture, if a married woman dresses like that in our culture, it's a subtle sign that she's loose, provocative, stepping out from underneath the authority of her husband. Now, I use that word authority for a reason, and here's why. The word head that Paul uses in this passage is used interchangeably. In, in certain instances, head is used literally as in reference to a person's noggin, right? At other times, the word head is used metaphorically or symbolically. For instance, in verse 3, Paul says that the head of every man is Christ. He's not talking about the noggin, right? It's obviously a metaphorical use of the word head, meaning the head or the authority of every man is Christ. So it could be accurately translated as the authority of every man is Christ. And then you contrast that with verse 4, where Paul says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, and this is referring to his physical head, his noggin. Okay? So verse 3 is foundational to this passage because Paul very clearly lays out an order of authority. And it goes like this. God is the authority over Jesus. Jesus is the authority over husbands, and husbands are the authority over wives. Now many of us, I understand, with our Western ears, we cringe to hear that, right? And the reason that we cringe is that in our secular culture, we are taught that authority is bad. It's authoritarian, right? And we are taught that being under someone's authority means that the person under authority is not as important, is less valuable than the one in authority. But that is not how biblical authority works. Biblical authority would better be described, as how I describe it, as responsibility, as the head of Christ, 
As the authority over Christ, God is responsible to initiate in the relationship with Jesus. He is responsible to protect Jesus, provide for him, communicate with him, be in unity with him. In other words, it's God's responsibility to love and serve Jesus. And Jesus' proper response was submission to the Father's love and service to him. In the same way as the head of the husband, Jesus is the authority, and thus he is responsible to initiate the relationship with the husband. He is responsible to protect the husband, provide for him, communicate with him, be in unity with him. In other words, it is Jesus' responsibility to love and serve the husbands, and he has, and he does, right? The husband's proper response is submission to Jesus' love and service. Likewise, the head of the wife is her husband. He is her authority, meaning the husband is responsible to initiate in the relationship with his wife. He is responsible to protect her, to provide for her, to communicate with her, to be in unity with her. In other words, it is the husband's responsibility to love and serve his wife. And the wife's proper response is submission to her husband's love and service. As Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 42 and following, that the loving Christian authority is not lording it over others, it's serving them in love. It is, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 33, seeking the advantage of the other. As a husband, it is seeking my wife's good over my own, her advantage over my advantage. As Ephesians 5 says, it is loving my wife as Christ loved the church, and giving myself up for her as Jesus gave himself up for me. This is what biblical authority or headship looks like. It's opposite what the world says. And the proper response to that type of headship, that type of authority, is submission. Jesus submitted to God the Father. Husbands are to submit to Jesus, and wives are to submit to their husbands. When everyone takes the responsibility and submits to one another in this God-ordained way, there is order, peace, communication, love, responsibility, unity, and efficiency. When this God-ordained order is resisted, there is division, chaos, ambiguity, jealousy, and misunderstandings. This created order, this distinction between the functions of the genders is God-ordained. According to Scripture, this order and distinction is not up for debate. Human beings did not create gender distinctions, either physical or functional. The distinctions and functions are a good gift from God, a loving gift given to us for our blessing and our enjoyment. And Paul points out that these distinctions were instituted by God at creation. These distinctions and functions should not be rejected and altered because society doesn't seem to like them. These distinctions and functions should be embraced and celebrated in the body of Christ because God created them. And the Corinthian believers, just like believers today, were not clear on these distinctions and these functions, and thus their worship of Jesus was chaotic and it was divisive, which isn't what God wanted. And so we have a lot to learn from this passage, actually. And with that premise established, Paul goes on to our second point, application for worship, verse 4 to 16. So, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. 
For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. All right, let's stop there for a minute. This is a difficult passage to work through because Paul uh, builds his statements one upon another. But I want you to keep this statement in mind as we work our way forward. Ready? This is our theme. Proper attitude and attire should characterize the distinctive worship of Jesus, and promote unity among his followers. Okay, That's what we're working towards in this passage. Verse 4 and 5. When it comes to head coverings, both men and women in Corinth were creating disunity in the worship service. This passage isn't just written to men, or to women. The men were covering their heads when praying and prophesying, and the women were uncovering their heads when praying and prophesying. Culturally, Men only covered their heads with part of a shawl or something when they were going to worship an idol or a demon. If a man were to do this, covering his head, it signified that he was participating in a pagan practice. If a believing man were to cover his head during a Christian worship service then, it would give the wrong impression. He would be dishonoring his head, his authority, which is Jesus Christ. It would signify a split allegiance. He was being disloyal to Jesus by covering his head because there was cultural nuance. God wants our worship of him to be distinct from the worship of idols and demons. However, as we just learned, if a woman were to pray or speak with her head uncovered, it would signify that she was loose and available for sexual cultic worship practices. And obviously this too would give the wrong impression, right? In following with this pagan practice, she would be dishonoring her head, which is her husband. So verse 6 and 7, shaved heads in the glory of man. Whoa, what is that about? Um, verse 6, if the, if the wife will not cover her head, she should be shaved. That's what Paul says. Isn't that weird? Um, in that culture, shaved heads on a woman was a sign of disgrace. Cutting the hair off was a punishment designed for public humiliation of an adulterous wife. And so the conundrum was, if a woman's hair was uncovered, flowing and long, it symbolized independent, sexually approachable woman. Also, if a woman were to cut her hair entirely and shave her head, then she would be disgraced as something she didn't want to be. And so how was the woman in Corinth not to be looked at as disgraced because her hair was cut or a prostitute because her hair was long and flowing? Well, Paul's solution was cover it with something like a shawl or with a scarf. In other words, dress modestly, right? Though she was free in Christ to dress however she wanted to, love for God and for others dictated culturally appropriate modesty. In verse 7, Paul reaffirms that man should not cover his head because an uncovered head would make his worship of Jesus distinct from the worship of an idol, and he is giving glory to God by doing so. Paul is referring to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, when he says that man is made in the image of God. According to Genesis, both man and woman were created in the image of God. 
Why does Paul say that a woman is the glory of man then? Well, we have to go to verse 8 and 9 to see what he's getting at. See, Paul brings attention to the fact that man was made by God for God, in that God created him to be in an exclusive relationship with him. He created man first, and he desires exclusive devotion from Adam when he created him. God did not make man after the woman. He didn't make man from the woman either. Additionally, God did not make man for the woman. God did make woman after the man, from the man, and additionally, God did make woman for the man. That's all in Genesis. And so Paul's point is that God made woman for Adam, in that God created her from him to be in an exclusive relationship with him, and God's desire for her was that she be exclusively devoted to Adam. And so here is Paul's flow of logic. God is the head of Jesus Christ. Jesus never did anything to obscure his exclusive loving relationship with the Father. Jesus is the head of the husband. The man should not cover his head, otherwise he obscures his exclusive loving relationship with Jesus. The husband is the head of the wife. The woman should, should cover her head, otherwise she obscures her exclusive loving relationship with her husband. So taking off her head covering suggests that her relationship to her husband is less than exclusive. The exact same thing that happens to a man's relationship to Christ when he puts a veil on. Are you royally confused yet? Okay, hopefully you're following me. Verse 10, this is why a wife should have the symbol of her husband's authority on her head. Without it, she dishonors him, which in turn dishonors Jesus, which in turn dishonors God because he created this order. So again, the big picture in all this is unity, self-control, orderliness, love, and loyalty. But it's also because of the angels. Like, come on, Paul, why did you have to throw that in there? Like, seriously, what are you doing? Here's what I believe is going on here. Both Paul and Peter write about this. They wrote about the fact that angels look into the mysteries of the church and marriage and redemption and they, in some mysterious way, participate in the things that the church does. They wrote that angels are here watching what we as the church do, how we interact with one another, and how we interact with God. And so he is simply saying that honoring each respective head in God's ordained order, dressing modestly, doing all for the glory of God, gives the right impression to one another, to visitors that come in, and to angels. And following this pattern displays the proper attitude and attire which characterizes the distinctive worship of Jesus and promotes unity among his followers. The idea is that worship is about glory to God. Paul's not restricting either gender from participating in praying or worshiping or prophesying. He's simply saying that when men and women pray and prophesy, they should do so properly and modestly, thus bringing undistracted glory to God when they do. And angels notice when we follow God's created order and function, and they join in the worship of God with us. It's a wonderful thing to think about. Verse 11, nevertheless, Paul's not quite done with his discussion on this. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman's not independent man or man of woman. All right, a few more things to consider in relation to proper attitude and attire for worshiping Jesus together. Even though there is a distinction in gender, function, and role, there's an interdependence between men and women, husband, wife. Though there is a created order 
of, with headship and authority and responsibility, both men and women are mutually interdependent. Neither one is more important than the other. Neither gender can survive without the other. We need each other. And most importantly, we need each other to remain in our God-given genders, function within our God-assigned roles, and exclusively worship our Creator God for prosperity and posterity's sake, if you know what I mean. And here's the thing. All these things are from God. This is a very important statement. God's Word does not teach a melding of the genders. God's Word does not teach that gender is a social construct. God's Word teaches that all these things are from God. God made us male and female for a reason, each one of us. He didn't make a mistake. He doesn't want us to alter what he created. In fact, it's the opposite. He wants us to find stability and identity and joy and purpose in resting in the fact that he decided what we will be. And he decided the relational order of responsibility that is best for us and ensures our greatest good and a heavenly unity between husband and wife and Savior and God and within the body of Christ. And though Paul writes in Galatians 3.28 that there's neither male nor female because we are all one in Christ Jesus, he is not saying that the male-female distinction is irrelevant or wrong or needs to be done away with. He's saying that the op opportunity to approach God the Father on the merit of Jesus Christ is available to anyone, male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. It is, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul points out that each gender uniquely displays the glory of God, and this uniqueness should be evident as believers worship Jesus. Male and female distinctiveness should be celebrated and outwardly but modestly apparent in our Christian worship for the glory of God and for the good of all of his people. There's a lot there. All right, verse 13 to 16. Paul gives three more reasons for the Corinthians to adopt a proper gender-appropriate attitude and attire which characterizes the distinctive worship of Jesus and promotes unity among his followers. Let's read verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, or it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. First, so he gives three more reasons, the Corinthians, to adopt this gender-appropriate attitude and attire, okay? First is common sense, verse 13. I want you to notice this wasn't a restriction on what woman could or could not do, whether prophesying or praying, but on the way in which they did it. The important thing is this. Through our attitudes and our actions, who is getting the attention? Us or God? If a woman in that culture prayed with her head uncovered and her hair loosely flowing down her back, her appearance would have been distracting, seductive, and drawing attention away from God and toward fleshly desires. What do you think? If a woman were standing up on stage praying with us with a halter top and miniskirt, would she be getting the attention or would God? And Paul is like, it's common sense, people. Culturally, a woman should cover her head while she prays to show that she's under the authority of her husband and not to draw attention away from the one that we are worshiping, which is Jesus. 
Second reason for proper modesty that Paul gives is nature, meaning what is natural. He's not speaking of mother nature or anything weird like that, but what is inherent, the way things are, so to speak, because God made them that way. Verse 14, Paul is not arguing for a certain hair length. What he is saying is that it is a disgrace for a man to look like a woman, but it's entirely appropriate and beautiful for a woman to look feminine. It is her glory. God made women beautiful with long hair, a distinct and distinguishing marker the world over. Let the women have that beautiful and glorious distinction. All this is from God. Men should look like men, and women should look like women. Embrace God's design, especially as we gather as a church and worship Jesus, our Savior. Third reason for proper modesty that Paul gives is that this practice is shared by all the churches of God, or at least it should be. Paul's like, if anyone wants to quarrel, I love Paul, puts up his dukes, right? If anyone wants to quarrel with me about this, this is the same thing. I tell everyone everywhere I go, it's the same standard in every church in every corner of the planet, he says. I encourage a proper attitude and attire that characterizes the distinctive worship of Jesus and promotes unity among his followers. We don't want to err from that, is what Paul is saying. So let me wrap this up for you and give you something to walk away with if you don't have anything yet. As God's holy people, sanctified, called, saved, loved, enriched, cleansed, provided for, brought into an exclusive, covenant, loving relationship with God Almighty, you have been saved from death, made clean by Jesus, lavished with grace upon grace. You are the beautiful, adorned bride of Christ. And because of all that blessedness that you received, but you didn't deserve, Because you have been bought with a price, glorify God in whatever you do and with your whole being. Submit to his created order. It is for your good and for his glory. Rejoice in the physical gender you were born with, the gender that God gave you. It is for your good and for his glory. Don't dress provocatively. It is for your good and his glory. Men, don't dress in such a way or do anything that would cause others to second-guess your devotion to Jesus. Consider how you can bring glory to God. It is for your good and his glory. Women, don't act in such a way or dress in such a way that shames your husband or Jesus. Consider how what you do can bring glory to God. It's for your good and his glory. And for all of us, how In how you dress, how you act, how you interact with one another, consider others more significant than yourself. And the others that you should consider begins with Jesus. Consider him more significant than yourself because he is. And that's who we worship when we come here. And then, for the sake of unity in the church, harmony between genders, good testimony before the lost, and giving glory to God, consider how you can dress yourself modestly. As I said last week, God's will for you is this, that you do all for his glory and not for your own. That everything you do be done out of love for others and not for yourself. And when we do all for the glory of God and out of love for others, life ceases to be about us, just like Jesus' life was not about himself. So ladies and gentlemen of KMCC, be simply that. Ladies, be godly ladies. 
Dress in a God-honoring and modest way. Let your beauty give glory to God and not draw attention to yourself. Rest in the authority structure that God designed. Bring honor to God and to your husband. Let God use you in this church as you humbly and modestly pray for and care for one another. Gentlemen, be godly gentlemen. Love your wives by serving them. Lead your families by laying down your life for them. Love those who you would consider are your enemies by seeking their well-being above your own. And for all of us, be willing to adopt the proper attitude and attire that characterizes the distinctive worship of Jesus and promotes unity among his followers. Be thankful that God made you just the way you are and take all that you are in the distinctiveness of how he created you to humbly and modestly bring honor and glory to God in all that you do. Let's pray.